0: Church, I invite you to draw your sword and turn once again to Romans chapter 13, as today we continue our study of this very timely New Testament letter. Romans chapter 13, I want to read in your hearing, verses 8 to 14. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 13, allow me to begin at verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not covet and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule love your neighbor as yourself love does no harm to its neighbor therefore love is the fulfillment of the law and do this Understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decent decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The gospel is a game changer. In view of God's massive mercy, which he perfectly displayed for us in the sinless life, the substitutionary death, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore we ought to view everyone differently. In view of God's massive mercy, we look up and we see a God worth worshiping. We look within and we see a sinner worth saving. We look around and we see siblings in Christ worth loving. And we look behind and we see enemies worth winning for the gospel. Last week, we discovered that even in light of God's massive mercy, we look upon the government differently. And in our passage this morning, Paul continues the theme. And he tells us that because of God's mercy, we look at our neighbors differently He reminds us of that commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is not a new command. This is not something that originates with the Apostle Paul. Throughout the Bible, we are told to love. In fact, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are told to respectfully love their husbands. Children are told to respectfully honor mom and dad. And parents are told to love their children by pointing them in the right direction and not exasperating them. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, A new command I give you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. All throughout the Bible, we are commissioned and commanded to love. In fact, Even outside the Bible, just about every nation that has ever existed has told the people of its uh, citizenship that we must love one another. Now in many of the passages that I've recorded for you, recited for you, and in this passage that I just read for you, Paul employs a specific word when it comes to love. It's the ancient Greek word, agape. It's God's love. It's love that is marked as unconditional, unending, unmerited. And every time in our passage of Romans 13, 8 to 14, when you find the word love, it is a derivative of the Greek word agape. Paul is specifically telling us that the love that God has shown to us is the love that we must share towards our neighbors. We live in a culture where we love just about anything and everything. And the meaning of love has lost its elasticity so that it's flimsy and flabby. But when you and I come here to Romans 13, Paul orients all of our love in the agape love of God. So we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now every society and every culture always struggles with who is in the neighbor zone. Who is my neighbor? Who are the people that I'm supposed to be neighborly towards? In the Jewish mentality and mindset, your neighbor was a fellow Jew. In the Roman Empire, your neighbor was anyone in your same social class. For the longest time in the American culture, your neighbor was understood as anyone who lived in a close proximity to you, and you got to decide what that proximity was geographically. And it would appear to me that in these recent days, that we have even defined further what it means to be a neighbor in the American context, for it would appear that your neighbor is whoever votes just like you. But let me ask you, do you remember how Jesus defined neighbor? One day a hotshot lawyer approached Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus took the lawyer right back to the law. How do you read God's law? What does it say? And the lawyer quickly responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was pretty impressed with that thorough response of the lawyer. So he simply replied, do this and you will live. That answer didn't satisfy this inquisitive lawyer, so he pressed the point just a little bit further. He must have thought to himself, listen, I know what it means to love God with all the stuff that's inside of me. In fact, I think I do a pretty good job of that. And I think everybody else would testify that I know what it is to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ah, but it's loving neighbor that always gets me in trouble. Certainly, the lawyer must have thought, I I, I agree with you, Jesus. There are some people worthy of my love. But there have to be other people that are beyond the pale, outside the boundary. There have to be some other people that are not worthy of my time and attention and affection and love. So I just need for you to kind of pare it down for me. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And at that moment, Jesus crafted one of those well-spun stories. There was a Jewish man, he said, that was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was there in the Hands of thugs and robbers. They jumped him, they beat him, they robbed him, they stripped him, left him half dead as he was lying there in a pool of his own blood. And as that man was moaning and groaning, fortunately for him, a priest came walking past. Now, In those days, as in this day, if there's anybody who's going to help somebody in need, it's the pastor type person, right? So a priest will surely stop and help. A pastor would surely stop and help. But on this day, the pastor had too many things to do, too many people to see, too many appointments to make. And he concluded that even though I see the man, I'm going to overlook the man. Because if I get down and if I get this man's blood on my garments, then I will be declared unclean. And I don't have time to have to go through all of that. So the priest just crossed the street and passed by on the other side. He acted as if he didn't see the man in need. A few moments later, a Levite came that same route. Now, if a priest is not going to stop, then surely a Levite would stop. A Levite is a deacon-type person. I mean, at the heart of a deacon is a servant, and and surely a servant of the congregation would stop and help, right? And so, so this man is lying there in his own pool of blood, and here comes a Levite. But the Levite, too, for whatever reason, saw the man but overlooked the man. He crossed the street and passed by on the other side. But Jesus said, a Samaritan came that way. When the Samaritan saw the man, he had pity on him. He went and got his hands dirty. He bandaged his wounds, put him on his own beast of burden, led him into town, checked him into the local hotel, stayed with him through the watches of the night. The next morning, this Samaritan gave the innkeeper two silver coins, which was more than enough to cover the expenses. And he said to the innkeeper, I want you to watch over my newfound friend. And if you incur any additional expense, when I come back through town, I'll reimburse you because you know I'm good for it. And Jesus looked at the hotshot lawyer whose eyes were spellbound and whose jaw had dropped. And Jesus said, which one acted like a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the rich uh, hotshot lawyer could not even muster the word Samaritan. He simply said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. It would seem to me that Jesus is defining a neighbor as anyone who has a need that you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. It goes well beyond your race. It goes well beyond your social class. It goes well beyond the geography around your physical home. It goes well beyond any markers that you would define as who are people like you and who are people that are not like you. Jesus just pretty much says your neighbor is any fellow man who has a need that you're in a position to meet. Now it's kind of hard for us to feel the force of the rhetoric when Jesus spoke about a Samaritan as the hero of the story. I mean, for us to say that Samaritans and Jews in the first century hated each other is putting it mildly. I mean, Samaritans hated Jews and Jews hated Samaritans. And for us to put it in our cultural context, it's very hard. But it might be something like this, that a transgendered atheist comes along and assists and helps an evangelical Christian who's in need. You sit there and you think to yourself, that, that's, that's not even fathomable. That's unbelievable. I, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine that happening. That's when we begin to feel the force of the parable of Jesus. Jesus is telling us that, that your neighbor is anyone, any fellow human who has a need that you are in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. I think this is what Paul has in mind. When he says in our passage that whenever we show love to our fellow man, we are fulfilling the law. Let no debt be outstanding except the debt of love. Let no debt go unpaid except the debt of love. You, you cannot pay enough when it comes to showing love towards others. the same love that you've been shown by God you must share with others. It was Dr. Leon Morris who said this command that's found in Romans chapter 13 is a command of a continuous action. I mean, you can't get to the point where you say, "I have loved that person enough. I can't love them anymore." No, your debt of love can never be fully paid because we are commissioned and called to love our fellow man. As many times as they need it. So we continually love. We can't say, you know what? I've loved that scallywag. I've loved that family member. I've loved that spouse. I've loved that person enough. I cannot do anything else. Can't show any more favor, any more grace, any more kindness, any more love. All we have to do is put it in the context of how much love has God lavished upon you And his agape love is unending, unmerited, unconditional, and that love towards you must be a love that you show towards others. So then it becomes the question, okay, in view of God's mercy, I'm compelled to love my neighbor as myself, but how do I do that? In practical ways, how do I love my neighbor? And in these few verses, I think that Paul gives us three practical ways of how we are to love our neighbor. Reminding ourselves that a neighbor is anyone who has a need we're in a position to meet. So first and foremost, I think that in view of God's mercy, we show our love to our neighbors by obeying passionately the word of God. The primary way we show love is by obeying passionately the word of God. The Christian is never unhitched from God's word. We are tightly tethered to the Bible. Our actions are tied to the Bible. Our attitudes are tied to the Bible. The apostle understands as he knows that our belief influences our behavior, that our convictions help to shape our conduct, that our learning forges our living. So he knows that the best way that we show love to anybody, so we show love to our neighbor, is by obeying passionately the word of God. So in our passage, he, he ties this instruction of love to four of the top 10 commandments. And by the way, all four of them are on the right side of the tablet. If you remember when you saw the picture of the 10 commandments, on the left tablet usually are those commandments between you and God. These are, this is how you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the right tablet pretty much shows us how we love our neighbor as ourself. It's a horizontal example of love, uh, from one person to another and in our passage the apostle chooses four of the five that would be on the right side of the tablet he says things like don't commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not covet and then he says and any other commandment all of them can be summed up as loving your neighbor as yourself that when you love the way God loves, when you love your fellow man the way God loves you, then you are fulfilling the commandment of God. Now, I don't wanna be Captain Obvious here, but let me just remind you that, that one way that you show that you love your neighbor is by not having an affair with your neighbor's spouse. Now, for some, that might be elementary. I mean, that might be so obvious, um, but but apparently it needs to be repeated. Uh, that, there's no scenario that you can conjure up where god would give you permission to commit adultery let me say that again there there is no scenario There is no situation that is so bad, that is so horrible in your marriage. There is no scenario, there is no situation in your marriage where God would say, okay, I give you permission this one time to commit adultery. God will never do that. It is never God's will for you to commit adultery. You remember what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 39? Joseph, that well-built, handsome man You know, the kind of guy that I hated growing up, the well-built, handsome man? It's Joseph, and that's how he's described in Scripture, well-built and handsome. And he's being seductively seduced by the beautiful wife of Potiphar. Mrs. Potiphar repeatedly is saying to him, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And repeatedly he refuses. Eventually, in Genesis chapter 39, he simply says to her, how can I do this wicked thing and sin? against God Joseph's exactly right adultery is a wicked thing there's no way you can describe it any other way it is wicked in the sight of God and it is a sin against God Almighty it is also a sin against your spouse and against your family against your testimony but it ultimately is a sin against God now let me remind you also one step further that what the Old Testament law lifted up as an external requirement, Jesus internalized. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Yet I say, don't even look at a woman lustfully. For if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So Jesus is saying that this gospel that I'm calling you to, it's not just a list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's not just some external code of conduct but the external becomes internal, that what's on the outside, it, become, it comes from what's on the inside. So Jesus says, long before you ever do the dirty deed in the back seat of the car, long before you ever go to the hotel room, long before you ever meet up for the hookup, long before you ever do the physical deed, long before that, if you just gaze upon someone in a lustful way, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. And so Jesus internalizes this. And he says, listen, if you're going to love your neighbor, you've got to look at them with absolute purity in your eyes and in your heart. The apostle says, do not murder. Now, once again, it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to love your neighbor, then you probably shouldn't go across the street and kill him. I mean, that's a pretty good idea. If I'm going to love you, I'm not going to murder you. But once again, it's Jesus who internalizes that which is external. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. Yet I say, don't even get angry with your brother. For when you're angry, you sin. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, watch the words that come from your mouth. You can say a certain word that will land you in front of the Sanhedrin. But if you say you fool, you can be condemned for all of eternity. What Jesus is saying is you've got to watch the words that come out of your mouth. And and when you get angry, sometimes you say things that, how do we describe it? I really didn't mean it. I say things that I regret. I say things that I really wish I would not have said. In anger, I say things that, boy, I wish I could just have a rewind button and just kind of erase it. And Jesus is saying, watch your anger. I know the scripture says in the Old Testament, do not murder. That's senseless slaughtering. Since the slaughtering of of murder and uh, homicide, suicide, abortion, all those things qualify under senseless murder. But Jesus says, go even beyond one step. Uh, Not just don't murder, but don't get angry at your brother or your sister. And when you do get angry, uh, watch the words that come from your mouth. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you ever wonder, where, does that, where did that word come from? That doesn't sound like me. Yeah, it does. Because it comes straight from your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart we speak. Jesus went even further in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you're in a worship service and you're about to lay your offering on the altar, and all of a sudden you remember a brother who's angry with you, leave your offering there. Go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship. I always find that intriguing that Jesus says that in the moment of worship it's not so much that I remember someone that I'm angry with but in that passage he says you recall some brother who has it out against you because what do we do when somebody has it out against us when somebody is angry with us we usually say that's their problem not mine I mean they got the same shoes to get glad in I mean, it's their fault. They're mad at me. I didn't do anything. I didn't do, I mean, they can forgive me. It's their fault, not mine. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, listen, if you know of a brother who's angry at you, if you know of a sister who's got it out for you, then you just leave the worship service and you go and you desperately plead to be reconciled to that brother or sister in Christ. And then the implication is together y'all come back and worship because your worship will be better. It will be pure and it will be unblocked because if you don't forgive others, then God Almighty can't forgive you. It's kind of like a door that's blocked, stopped. So, So we have to forgive each other. Jesus is talking about how we love each other. So here in our passage, Paul says, look, don't commit adultery, do not murder, don't steal, don't covet. Once again, it seems just so basic, doesn't it? Um, If I'm going to love my neighbor, if I'm going to love a fellow man, I probably should not take something that doesn't belong to me. I probably shouldn't steal from him or her. And also do not covet. The word covet just simply means to want more of what you have enough of already. You want a new truck because your neighbor has a new truck, but the truck that you have that's parked in the driveway still runs. And it's... It does everything you need it to do. You've got a closet full of shoes and boots, but you want a new pair of shoes and a new pair of boots. Why? Because you saw shoes and boots on your neighbor's feet and you thought, wow, it looks good on her. It better look good on me. It looks good on him. I better look good on me. So you want more of what you have enough of already. Or take, for example, your spouse. Your spouse is fine. In fact, you probably should tell your spouse, baby, you're fine. Uh, your spouse is fine. There is no reason for you to try to trade her in for a newer model because the one you have is perfectly fine. That's, that's what coveting is. It's wanting more of what you have enough of already. And here in our passage, Paul says, listen, if you're going to love your neighbor, the best way you love your neighbor is by obeying passionately the word of God because the Christian is never unhitched from God's word. We are tightly tethered to the Bible. The Bible shapes what we think, how we believe, and it also influences how we behave. So in view of God's mercy, we love our neighbor by obeying passionately the word of God. Secondly, we love our neighbor by sharing eagerly the salvation of God. In view of God's massive mercy, we love our neighbor by sharing eagerly the salvation of God. Look with me again in verse 11 of our passage. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Understand the present time. Yes, the argument could be made that the Apostle Paul is looking for an eschatological opportunity when Jesus will split the eastern sky and he will descend. Absolutely. He is saying that salvation is nearer than, it's, than when we first believed. That, that, that Jesus will physically come back one day. He, he will come and he will physically come and he will physically rescue his church. Certainly that day is coming. But before Paul gets to that, he says, understand the present time. Understand the present time. Throughout the New Testament, the present time or hour or season is described in various ways. In Galatians, the apostle says, the present time is evil. In 1 Corinthians, he writes that the present time is short. In 2 Corinthians, he says this present time is the day of salvation. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is about to enter the city of Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. The crowds are going crazy. The religious rulers say, come and command your disciples to pipe down. And Jesus says, if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. And then Jesus begins to look around the city of Jerusalem, and he's grieved. Why? Because they did not recognize the time of God's coming. This present age is evil. It's short. This present age is the day of salvation. It's the arrival of God. In Acts chapter 1, The disciples are speaking to the resurrected Christ and they say, is now the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the present time? Is this the time? Is this the opportunity? Is this the hour that you will restore your kingdom? And by his answer, Jesus says, this is the time of proclamation. Regarding dates and times, those are set by God's authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It would seem that consistent throughout the New Testament, when it comes to this present time, yes, it is full of evil, it is full of sin. Yes, it is brief, it is short. Yes, this present time, which marks all the time after the resurrected uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the time in which we live between the comings, between the advents of the first coming and the second coming, this present time has been given to us so that we may share eagerly the salvation of God. Why else would God give us this much time? Certainly, you don't have time on your hands just to make more money. You don't have time at your disposal just to make a name for yourself. You don't have time given to you as a gift right now in the here and, here and now, simply just to make some more fun. No, the reason we have time on our hands is so that we may share eagerly the salvation of God friend the second coming of Christ is imminent when I use the word imminent that's not synonymous with immediate it could be it could be that Jesus will come back when I finish this sentence okay maybe not it'll happen later all right but it could happen at any moment it is imminent the word imminent means that there is nothing standing in the way of Jesus. Everything's been done for him to come. It is imminent. He could come at any moment. It's not that he's waiting on anything else to happen. So, so the, the question has to be asked, then, then why hasn't he come back already? If it's so imminent, if it could happen at any moment, if nothing is standing in the way of Jesus' second coming, his return to rescue the church, then why hasn't he come yet? Uh, Why has he come back yet? Why is he still giving us some more time? And the answer has to be, it has to be, that we have time on our hands so that we may share eagerly the salvation of God. I mean, why else would he give us time? It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, we have no right to spiritually sleep. Not here, not now. We have no right to spiritually sleep because God has rescued us from death. We have to be alert. In our passage of verse 11, this is why the apostle says to the church, wake up from your slumber the call of the gospel is a wake up call the call of the gospel is a realization that you know what i have time on my hands so i can make much of jesus and i know what some of you are thinking i don't have any time on my hands i'm in a season of life i've got some kids they're running ragged i've got deadlines at work there's so many responsibilities i mean i cannot catch myself coming and going i've got no time whatsoever friend all of us have the same amount of time in every day and every week and we typically We typically use our time doing the things that we value as important. And if we value our work as important and we value our family as important and we value making money as important, we will use our time to accomplish these tasks. But friend, if the second coming of Christ is imminent, why has God given you so much time? Why has he given me so much time? And part of that answer has to include that we've got to wake up from our slumber And we've got to be alert. We have no reason to be spiritually asleep. What Paul is saying to the first century is, Church, you are sleepwalking through the Roman Empire. You are sleepwalking through the first century. And Paul would say, by implication, some of the problems we're having in the first century is because the church has not introduced enough people to King Jesus. And what Paul says to them, I say to you, some of the reasons that we have the problems that we have is because the church, for so many years and so many decades has not introduced enough people to King Jesus, and if we introduce more people to King Jesus, then I promise you our culture would not be the way that it is. We have to wake up from our slumber. This is a wake-up call, Paul says. It's the gospel call that we have to wake up and ask the question, what am I doing with the time that God has given me so I can make much of Jesus? Now, some of you may want to push back and say, Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm very much awake. I'm very much alert. I very much know the things of God and what God is up to in my culture. I'm very much awake and alert. Okay, let me ask it this way. How many people did you lead to the Lord last week? Oh, but Pastor, that's not my job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads people to salvation. I don't lead anybody to salvation. Okay, I get you, I understand. Let me ask it another way. How many gospel conversations did you have last week? How many conversations did you have last week with somebody with the intentional effort to bring them to the point of commitment? How many conversations did you have last week it was all about Jesus in the hopes that you were gonna bring somebody to faith in Christ? Let me ask another question. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, who are you discipling right now? Who are you discipling right now? And mom and dad, you can say your children if you're intentionally discipling your children. But don't just look at Junior and Sally and say, hey, those are my disciples. I'm discipling them if you're not really doing it. Who are you intentionally discipling? Is there somebody at work? Is there somebody at school, is there somebody up and down the street? Is there somebody in your home? Who are you discipling? If you are a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are you discipling? Are you close to somebody who's not close to God? Does somebody come to mind that fits that description? Somebody in your family? Somebody in your network of friends? Are you close to someone who is far from God, not close to the Lord. In other words, what I'm asking you is what I will be asking you more and more in the coming weeks, but I'm asking you the question, who is your one? Who is that one person that you're praying for? Who is that one person in your family network or in your friends? Who is that one person at work or at school? Who is that one person that you are intentionally trying to share the gospel with? You're praying for them and their salvation every day. And you're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them in hopes of discipling them. Not just to faith, but through faith. I'm asking the question, who is your one? And friend, if one person doesn't come to mind in less than three seconds... Then we really don't have a one. Who is it that God is putting in your sphere of influence for you to help introduce to King Jesus and disciple them along the way? Because after all, isn't that why God's still giving us some more time? Isn't that why He has not returned yet? He's coming. I'm telling you, He's coming. Jesus will come back one day, but He hasn't come yet. To rescue his church. So it must be because he wants us to share eagerly the salvation of God. How do we show that we love our fellow man? How do we show that we love our neighbor? Well, first and foremost, you've got to obey passionately the word of God. And secondly, you've got to share eagerly the salvation of God. Third and finally, the way that we show that we love our neighbor is that we live Urgently in the peace of God. We live urgently in the peace of God. In verses 12, 13, and 14, the apostle gives three common New Testament analogies to living life. He says things like night and day, darkness and light, nakedness and clothing. All three of those analogies, it's used in other places of the New Testament. And all three of them communicate how we live daily life. We don't live as children of the night. We live as children of the day. We need to put aside the misdeeds of darkness. We need to take on the weapon, the armor of light. And we don't engage in the things of vulgar nakedness. He itemizes about six things in the passage. Orgies and drunkenness. Sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. We don't engage in, in vulgarity of nakedness. No, we are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we do not gratify the sinful cravings of our sinful nature. This is how we live. Paul says we ought to live decently. I would use the word decently, except I use the word Urgently. Because the word decently, it, it, it just it, it doesn't sound as urgent as urgently. So I say, I say we live urgently in the peace of God. The word decently, it means that we live in a fitting manner. We live in a worthy manner. A manner worthy of the gospel. With the gospel, there is a Christian ethic. What we believe has to be lived out by how we behave. There is a connection between our doctrine and our daily duty. I mean, we have to show the the, the fact that Christ lives inside of us. And so we don't live as the old Adam. We live in the power and the peace of the new person in Christ. Earlier in Romans, Paul says we are not controlled by the sinful mind. We are controlled by the spiritual mind. And as we walk with Christ, the longer we go, the more we yield unto him the more we sacrifice on him. And we live urgently. We don't have time to spare. We don't have time to waste. We don't want to contradict our our testimony by the way we live. And so we live urgently in the peace that passes all understanding. Friends, this is the precise passage that sealed the salvation of Aurelius Augustine. Augustine was born In Carthage, that's North Africa, in 354 AD. His mother was a devout Christian by the name of Monica. Monica prayed for her son every day that he would give his life to Christ. Aurelius' father was not so much a religious man, but he was a big believer in education. So he made sure that young Augustine was in the best classes that money could buy. It was there in the classroom that the brilliance of Augustine blossomed. He graduated the head of his class. He graduated with high honors. He went and became the professor of rhetoric at the prestigious school in Milan. It was there that he was introduced uh, to the preaching and teaching of the man named Ambrose. Ambrose was the bishop of that city of Milan, and Ambrose was a good preacher. He would take a passage. He would exegete the passage. He would walk through it, uh, tell it what it meant, and tell it how it applied. He was a good preacher of the gospel. Augustine sat in the crowd. He listened intently. He never surrendered completely. The reason Augustine never surrendered was because of the worldliness that resided inside of him. You see, in his autobiography entitled The Confessions, which he would later write, he tells of his teenage years. And he says that in his teenage years, he lived just like everybody else in his culture, everybody else in his world. It's evidenced by his multiple sexual partners all before the age of 16. He thought he was doing the right thing by limiting himself to one woman at the age of 17. He never had any intention of marrying her, but he thought to himself, well, at least that's better than having multiple sexual partners, I'll just have one mistress. He kept that mistress on the side for all those years. As he would listen to the preaching of the intellectual Ambrose, he would think to himself, if I give my life to Christ, I'm gonna have to give up my mistress. And Augustine said, that's a price. I don't know if I'm willing to pay. He was under deep conviction. He was one day in the garden of a friend. And as he was pacing in the garden, he was asking himself, why cannot at the end of this hour something be done with my uncleanness? Why at the end of this hour can something not be done with my uncleanness? I am so unclean. I realize I'm Sinful, but, but what can be done about it? In the distance, he heard some children playing. Whatever game they were playing, they had the repetitious phrase, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. He looked down at the bench. There was a Bible. And Augustine picked up that Bible. And he said, I made the commitment that I would read wherever my eyes fell. Now, friend, that's not a Bible study technique that I would uh, encourage you to do. But it works in this story. So he takes the Bible and he just allows it to open up. And his eyes fall immediately on Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. This is what he reads. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He wrote in his autobiography entitled The Confessions, when I came to the end of that sentence, I did not read another sentence, nor did I need to. For in that moment, the light of the Lord shone and the gloom of doubt vanished. And in that moment, by the power of God's word, Augustine completely surrendered his life unto the Lord. It was an answer to a prayerful mom. It was an answer to numerous other individuals who had tried to share the gospel with him. And, and St. Augustine, as he later became known, St. Augustine so surrendered himself to the Lord that he became the bishop of the North African city called Hippo. And he lived there for 40 years in that capacity. Many have said that no better mind has been given to Christianity than the mind of Augustine, because Augustine was so brilliant and many of our doctrines that we hold dear, our understanding of the Trinity, our understanding of who Jesus is as completely God and completely human, our understanding of the process of salvation, it was all shaped by the writings and the work and the theology of this man named Augustine. Certainly, he was a brilliant mind and he says in his confessions, When I came to verse 13, I realized that's who I am. When I came to verse 14, I realized that's who I can become in Christ. For he said, that's who I am. I was a man of orgies and drunkenness and sexual morality and debauchery. That's who I was. But because of God in Christ, in verse 14, I could be clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could have the power not to give in to the sinful desires of my flesh. He says, verse 13 is what I was verse 14 is what I became and I wonder this morning if you could have the same testimony verse 13 describes who you were as the old Adam verse 14 describes who you are in Christ I'll give you one other line from his autobiography he says in the confessions our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Isn't that the call, the gospel? Our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. And we live urgently the peace of God. Because of what Christ has done for us, because the massive mercy of Jesus What's available to us is peace with God, peace with self, and peace with fellow man. And I wonder this morning, does your restless heart know God? Our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. And I wonder this morning, do you know God who is so massive in his mercy? He has shown you unconditional, unmerited love in Jesus Christ. If you don't know him as Savior, today can be the day of salvation. All you have to do when we begin to sing is just come, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need to surrender completely to King Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, do you really know the peace that passes all understanding? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Friend, the love that God has shown to you, you must share to others. You say, Pastor, how do you do that? The way we show love to our neighbor is by obeying passionately the word of God. The way we show love is by sharing eagerly the salvation of God. The way we show is by living urgently in the peace of God. Church, it's time to wake up, to wake from our slumber, to realize that we've been given time so that we may make much of Jesus. And God, help us to do it well. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, we give you this invitation. Lord, there are some who are lost that need to be found. There are some who are saved, and they are struggling. And Lord Jesus, today I pray that you will help us to know the love that we have in Christ and to share that love with our fellow man. Father, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.